we are supported by Mammoth Fuel. Mammoth Fuel Bars were created with people like you in mind using only natural ingredients and zero artificial junk. We took no shortcuts in developing this highly functional and portable fuel bar. What are the benefits you may ask? Portable on-the-go fuel, post-workout recovery, boost cognitive function, aids in weight loss, anti-inflammatory, and low sugar. With 13 grams of protein and only 4 net carbs, Mammoth Fuel is the perfect meal, snack, and energy bar where you'd like to go. Try Mammoth Fuel at mammothfuel.com. Welcome to The New Normal, where we are talking current events, finances, philosophy, preparedness, and more. My name is Sal, and with me, as always, we have Quentin. Say hi to everybody, Quentin. What's up, guys? we got a great show for you guys tonight. Uh, Quentin, we have a, a good friend of mine, Myron, who is joining us for an interview tonight. Pretty excited to have him on. We're going to talk about some interesting things that he's got going on with his family. Um, just a little bit of background on him. Myron is an entrepreneur and the VP of sales and marketing with Daybreak Poly Furniture and Facio Concepts. Probably said that wrong, but you know what? Someone will correct us eventually. He's also a business coach with Freedom Group LLC, where he coaches business owners on living by design. On top of all of those credentials, Myron is a husband and a family man with five children living full time in an RV and traveling the world. They recently returned from an adventure in Bali, of all places. I don't think you can take an RV to Bali, so I'd love to hear what, what that uh, adventure was like. So everybody, thank you so much for tuning in to The New Normal. We want to welcome to the show, Mr. Myron Ballman. Myron, how are you? Doing well, thank you. Matt, we want to thank you so much for coming on to the show today. It's a pleasure to have entrepreneurs and business leaders to come talk to the audience and share with us the experiences that they're going through in this COVID situation, in this post-pandemic, or, or even just in the midst of this pandemic, and how it's affecting families, how it's affecting business, how it's affecting pretty much our way of life. And when we talk about the new normal, in the concept that most people take from that is a relatively negative concept, right? So when we talk about the new normal, you, you think of things like the shoe bomber. Now we have to take our shoes off at the airport, right? 9-11 as, as a whole changed the way we do business at airports and changed American way of life. And that just became the quote unquote new normal. So what we wanted to do with the show is, is take that concept of the new normal and sort of flip it on its head and talk about how this new normal can be looked at from the perspective of finances, philosophy, and current events and how we can relate that in a positive sense, what people are doing to change their mindset so that they can get ready or be more prepared. Should this get even worse or should it get better? And we take advantage of that situation and how we can come out of it. So I'm eager to hear about your family. Tell me a little bit more about uh, your five kids, is it? And, and living in an RV. When, when did you guys decide to do that? Yeah, so we are a family of uh, seven, five kids. Uh, our oldest is 11, our youngest is seven. And we just crossed our five-year mark of um, living in the RV here in April. So we've been wow. doing this for five years. Our oldest was six, and our youngest, I think, was two and a half or three when we started this journey. So 
Yeah, 2,300 square foot home down to 375 square foot, seven people. It's been a journey. What was their reaction initially, the, the kids? I, I assume your wife um, was pretty much on board, but like, what was it like for the kids? Yeah, I mean, it's it's an adventure. I mean, like any adventure or lifestyle choice, there's ups and downs, right? Because you're always exploring or you're having the fun side, but then there's the normal side. And they've grown up in it. So, I mean, two and a half years old, and then um, three of them were four or five, and, you know, because they're three of them are the same age. Um, so they were young. And so they, it's just kind of normal life to them. They almost don't know what it's like to live in a house. So that helps. <laughs> what are some of the, the interesting challenges that you've had to face with having that many kids in, in an RV in such a confined space? I think most of it is, I mean, we came from a 2,300 square foot home. So we had to downsize a lot of our stuff. Um, basically, if we don't use it in four weeks it goes um and if we don't even use it in a week we're like it's a heavy contemplation so that's a challenge when you have kids that like to collect um so that that definitely is challenging so we like to collect things as as young kids and so that's a challenge rainy days uh, are the next challenge um we want outdoors to be our playground and just to explore and do that but you know even if you're in a house outdoors is a bit challenging in the rain so uh rainy days are definitely the probably the second worst um thing about living in an rv right and and living in an rv obviously has has its challenges and its benefits with with downsizing you you kind of get into that minimalist lifestyle is that what led you to take this route was it to downsize and and you know either minimalism or essentialism is is the other buzzword what what got you into wanting to to have this as a full-time lifestyle for you guys i think that morphed um it really started with five kids uh that were very young trying to sell a property and so i was like um that was my persuasion i guess to my wife to even get on board with it was why don't we go live in an rv for a while while we sell the house and buy another house and um that didn't necessarily just go just like that but that's how it started and then it continued to morph into a lifestyle um then we got on a debt-free journey and yeah lots of yeah debt reduction and lots of other crazy things that then came out of it so were you doing some of these uh financial freedom and financial debt payoff was this already a part of that mentality or did it it just kind of naturally dovetailed into that lifestyle it didn't we actually were were spenders then uh, we mm. bought a brand new rv and you know um all those things so at that point we had topped out to almost 800 and some thousand in debt um so no we wow. weren't we didn't start this to get out of debt necessarily uh at all we were or we would have bought a used older rig or used the rv we had <laughs> so um it definitely wasn't started because of like hey let's cut our costs of debt maybe cost of living a little bit but not debt for sure and are you taking it when you first started was it from a full-time rv so i have a friend um mutual friend of ours scott who also is full-time rv and they travel so nine months out of the year they're pretty much all over the place is that the goal that you guys had or are you more stationary is a little bit of mix of both we're definitely more of a mix you know having we have about four companies at the time um and we were actually into real estate investing at that time as well and so I would say we were more of a six and a half and half. 
Um, so we might have went for three, four, every winter for the most part, we went south or somewhere like that. But then in the summer during our busier seasons, we definitely were more around the base here in Pennsylvania. And and being in Pennsylvania, uh, you come from, correct me if I'm wrong, um, was it a Mennonite background? Yeah, we were part of, yeah Mennonite background, yeah. Okay. What was that like growing up? Um. I'm not, I mean, some of the listeners might be familiar with, you know, the Amish community. We were a driving version of that. So no internet, uh, no TV, no radio. Um, And I started a marketing company when I was 16 years old. So that created some major challenges. (laughs) Oh, I bet. And, and were, were there any, I guess, hesitations in, in going that route when, when you had that kind of, I don't know if it's necessarily a strict background, but was it a challenge in, in even approaching that with family and friends back then? Um, not really until it started to become the digital part. Mm. Um, you know, it started as print. Um, and so that wasn't a big deal. So I would say it was probably about, I was 20. Uh, so the first four years, no big deal. So that kind of got the foot in the door on it. But then it started to go scratching into the web space. And that's when, because we weren't allowed internet and all that, there was kind of a conflict of how to do websites and develop stuff for people without the internet. So, right. And going back to, to the family size, you, you mentioned that you have three kids that are around the same age or that are the same age. Was it a goal for you guys to, to start a large family kind of right away? Or, or was that just something that, you know, you led into having more kids and, and I believe you adopt your, your children. Yeah. Yeah, all of ours are adopted. So basically what happened, we were married six years um, and um, had some disappointing uh, miscarriages. And when we started doing foster care is where it all started. Um, So four of our kids are uh, biological siblings. So we have 11-year-old, 10-year-old twins and the seven-year-old are full biologically yeah, four biological siblings. And then we have another girl three months to the day in age to the twins. So we call them our triplets. And uh, so yeah, it's 11, three 10 year olds and seven at this point in the injunction. But we had four, four in diapers at one time and it all started. So Wow. <laughs> have you seen the, the Marky Mark movie that is uh, based on a true story with, with foster children? I don't think I did. No, I think it's like ready-made family or something like that. Someone's going to correct this. I know they will. Um, But basically Marky Mark and his wife are real estate investors. They're, they're fixing and and flipping houses and uh, they decide to have kids and somewhere down the road, they, they start talking about adoption and you know, they're, they're playing this. um, Oh, what was it? I think it was a Beatles song, but someone's knocking at the door somebody's ringing and that sad song is like playing over marky mark looking at all these kids faces on on a website for foster care and you know that obviously tugs on his on his heart and they ended up adopting three siblings and you know obviously there's some struggles in that and like the first half of the the adventure in foster parents right there like this isn't as bad as everyone talked about. So they're going to these support groups and they're talking about all the horror stories, but then Marky Mark's character and and his wife are like, our kids are great. Like everything's, we looked out, everything's so cool. And and the parents in the group are just laughing at them. Like, just wait, right? Just wait. Were there any challenges for you guys when it came to adopting three sibling uh, kids that, that were coming right into the family? Were there any challenges or, or hiccups, road bumps that, you know, you weren't expecting or they didn't teach you about, they didn't train you for? 
So I, I, I seriously joke that if everyone that has kids biologically would have to go through the training, I think it was 18 weeks, it was not a lot of training hours that we had to go through to foster, um, there wouldn't be probably kids in the foster system. So yes, they do tell you and teach you a lot. Can that prepare you for the wounds um, and the hardships that kids come out of? Absolutely not. Um, <clears throat> It's just, it's hard when you get a one-year-old and she's crying half the first night in the first week because you don't know anything about her mm. and you don't know what they expect at bedtime. You, you just don't know anything. So um, even though, you know, we, we had the checklist, you might say, emotionally, it's really challenging um, because you care deeply and you want to give them this amazing, you know, scenario and you are, but they still, they can't communicate with you. It makes it really challenging. And then it definitely goes in, in segments. You might say there's great spells or with five kids, uh, there's always maybe one <laughs> that's journeying through something. They all um, mourn the, that um, the loss at different times. It's kind of like, you know, grieving the loss of a loved one. And, you know, some of them are younger. Some of them are just going through it now. And so they're just, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to prepare for that because you don't know when it's going to be and how they're going to process it. So, Sure. And I can't imagine that you'd be able to answer this from their perspective, but I guess from, from an awareness perspective as children, can you give some insights to the listener as to maybe some of the communication you and your children have had with respect to the, I guess, awareness that they are adopted, that they are foster children that led into adoption. Is there, is there any, I guess, animosity or, or I would imagine some gratefulness obviously is, is, you know, there, but from their perspective, having that awareness that they're adopted, what sort of challenges has, has that presented? Um, the, I would say the challenges uh, are, um, number one, we talk about it all the time as something we don't, how old is a secret? And that's definitely something I encourage people never hide the truth. Um, that hurts worse. So deal with the hurts or the pain by being honest. And that's what we've chosen to do. Um, where that really can come out to be interesting and, and sometimes hurtful, um, if we allow it to be, is when all of us te can tend to be like the grass is green on the other side of the fence. If only I was over there. So gratefulness can be also sprinkled with, if only I was with my real parents as they can refer to it as, then I would be able to do, or I wouldn't have this and just understanding they're speaking out of pain. Um, but I was the, the, my dad was adopted. So I, I'm, I tell, I tell people I'm, I'm the sandwich between two adoption stories. So I know what it feels like to be the son of a father that was adopted. And then now being the father of adopted. And it's just, there's a lot of dynamics there. Um, there's definitely a lot of gratefulness. I mean, a lot of times they'll come and just hug and go, Oh, we're so glad you're our, you know, our forever parents and things like That's that. Awesome. So it, it's definitely very rewarding. Um, but I'd be totally lying to you to say it's easy. There's, there's so much worth it that the hard times are worth it. Um, but For it's sure. still challenging. What are some of the techniques and, and tips I guess you would give as, as a husband and wife team who are doing this? What are some of the things that you and your wife communicate, you know, either with them or separately with, with you two talking together? Um, like I said before, definitely making sure, I mean, continuing to talk about and affirm 
their feelings. Um, so we're always, even my wife and I are connecting at how can we better um, communicate and affirm them in any of the challenges that they're facing because it's real to them. Even if we can see through it or we can see to the other side, not to undermine that for them it's real, it's big, and it's hard. And so we're just, and we're always just telling them, you know, talk it out. You know, if you talk out your feelings, um, try not to uh, um, encourage the pent up feelings because they just explode into <laughs> fireworks. So, what are some of the conversations that you and your wife have that kind of get you through, right? So I imagine, like with my wife, we have six kids ourselves and, and uh, Quentin has, has a small child. You know, there are conversations that you have where sometimes you're just having a really low moment and they've got to pick you up, right? I don't think we're ever at the same level of just preparedness and, and mindset to take care of all these kids, right? So what are some of the things that you and your wife do to encourage each other to get through that? I think reminding each other um, the truth. So if one of them's like, I would, you know, I wish you weren't my mommy or you're my daddy or whatever, you know, or whatever else that we might endure. um, Usually that can send you on a spiral. Right. But if the other one, if I was not the one that received those words, I can then be there and be like, Hey babe, you know, as well as I do that it was the moment and they were speaking out of the pain and they love you to death. And usually it's like, yeah, I know, you know, and and we just, it just helps to like every relationship. If both of you are in the dumps, it can be pretty dumpy. Mm. (laughs) So um, definitely is helpful when one of us is at least on, on the way up when the other one's on the way down. For sure. Yeah. So living in an RV, I imagine you, you said the great outdoors is your, is your playground. What are some of the best places in the United States that you've traveled so far? Um, if I were to ask our kids, you know, where they enjoyed the most, um, most of them would shout out Big Ben, um, in Texas. Uh, we spent a week down in Big Ben. Um, we went across the river into Mexico. They loved it. They shout out their own money and rented a, the, the little donkeys and rode up into the village. And they just, they talk about it all the time. Um, Texas as a whole is a big favorite of theirs. Rodeos, all of that fun stuff down there. Uh, We spent a decent amount of time in the Everglades in Florida. They really enjoyed that. Um, Colorado, Albuquerque, New Mexico. So there's a lot of cool places, but Big Ben National Park is definitely probably outside of the travel to Bali. That's a totally different story. Great. No, great segue, actually. So you've been doing the full-time RV thing for about five years, right? So what was what was the catalyst that got you guys to go to Bali, right? To go to Indonesia and spend, what was it? Three months or almost. We were there three months. Yeah. 92 days total. Wow. Um, Basically it was a dream and we kept saying, you know, and and we hadn't put a timetable to it, uh, but we kept saying, you know, in a couple of years, we're going to do this. Well, we met another family, another 2% family um, from the Danny Johnson community that we met in a campground. Well, at that point, I didn't know anything about the the Danny Johnson and that's how I got introduced, but we met them. They were standing at the corner of a a field in December of 2018. Uh, I was like December 21st or 22nd for my birthday. 
And my wife said, you know, you need to go say hi to those folks. It looks like they may have an adoption story as well. So I'm, I still joke with Cody, the, the folks that we went to Bali with, as uh, we got off to a trashy start because I was carrying trash to the trash uh, dumpsters after an event. And I just stopped by to say hi. And the joke was, it was my cop out. Well, we spent about 25 hours together that first week playing wow. games here. They were just right across the, the road from us for a couple of days. And we just didn't know who they were. And we played games. And by the end of that first week, um, I knew that we were like birds of a feather flock together. Um, and in the camp, and when you RV, you pretty much know in, in, a, in a, a meeting or two with someone, whether or not it's like, okay, these folks are going to connect to the next level or way deep right because you all the surface stuff is out of the way we know we live in an rv we know we're weird we know all these other things that rvers are so you kind of go quicker well by the end of the first week they were like dude we just got back from mexico to this um, world traveling event and we're super excited next year to go to bali to the next event you should join us and i look at my wife because i'm uh, i'm definitely an aggressive kind of guy and i'm like Let's do it. This is exactly what we're looking for: someone to invite us, a place to go to get a, a location, um, a little bit of stability around it. And we did. We committed because by December 30th, the prices were going to go up for the event. But we knew we could cancel until May or something without losing money. So that was my second concern. And the rest is history. Literally within seven days after meeting them, we committed to go to Bali. It ended up then deciding to be three months, not just for the event. So we were in Bali for 30 days on uh, Ubud mostly. And then we went to Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia for a week. And then we were in Chiang Mai, Thailand for three weeks over the Lantern Festival and then back to Bali for three or four weeks. That's amazing. So. I, I can't imagine how, how your children reacted to that. What was the culture shock for not only your kids, but for you and your wife, what was the culture shock value for you guys what was some of the things that really stood out that were not american that were not western yeah i mean definitely driving on the opposite side of the road <laughs> that's a unique challenge um cars are used there's a lot of them but it's very inefficient <clears throat> so we were a family of seven that got around on two scooters my wife drove a scooter i drove a scooter i had three kids she had two kids we go as far as an hour and a half away to the beach. Um, so that was a major difference. Um, the kitchens over there are very um, basic. And um, going and getting groceries or, or getting your own supplies is almost more economical to eat out. Um, so over there, I think it was, if I'm remembering right, 100000 of their money, because um, I'm forgetting the name right off top was about seven us and you could get a, a large pizza i mean wood fired a large pizza for thirty three thousand, so two dollars and fifty cents us wow um yeah so you could get meals i mean we could feed the kids uh, an adult meal for if we're really watching it for eighteen thousand or below twenty thousand for sure um so that's like a dollar like almost like a happy you know dollar meal I mean, at, at Wendy's. So, yeah. Were there a lot of expats over there that you ran into that were living that high life, given the, the value of, of the dollar? Um, Ubud is, is a little bit more of an expat area. Um, it was a very safe area. Um, but yeah, it was definitely 
there was English around there. Now in Chiang Mai, in Thailand, it was a different story. I mean, you could hardly go to the store. Um, English was a lot harder there. Were you, I guess, the safest way to ask this, were you, were you around any conflicts or, or issues? Did your family, you know, narrowly escape anything? Was there anything that, you know, put you in, in a situation you didn't feel comfortable being over there? I felt safer there than here. Really? Um, yeah. Tell me. I about would that. let my um, because there um, the honor and respect and just for kids is through the roof. Uh, also, they believe in a very I'm going to use the word karma. They believe in a very strong principle of karma. So they just I mean safety is of the key. Honor and respect. They know it's to a certain extent. They know it's where their money comes from. But even to their own people and everything we saw, I saw nothing even amongst their own people for in the two months we were there i felt more comfortable leaving my kids at at, at the house there and going out with us for a short date with my kids there than i would here literally by amazing. far that's amazing yeah you, you kind of get this stereotypical point of view of of the philippines and and indonesia as a very anti-christian or even anti-western society were you I guess, did you feel more safe because you were going into more touristy locations or you were navigating through kind of all of it and you still felt safe in all of that? Felt safe in all of it. That's awesome. Um, yeah, we just, there was no encounters. Everyone was welcoming. I mean, uh, some of our kids are a little darker complected and our youngest son um, got the headdress and wore the sharon, all the stuff that they do. I mean, literally walked through the market and they're, I mean, he was like the talk of the town. I mean, talk of the town, you might That's say. Awesome. I mean, they were like, you know, young man, handsome young man. I mean, they were just like, they were so proud yeah. that he took on and respected their culture. Sure. And um, I mean, and we just so saw there, that all over. There were no cries of cultural appropriation happening. No. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. you kind of get that on, on the west coast of you know you you start to culturally appropriate even though that you're honoring that particular culture so that's good to hear when you guys were over there so how how recently did you guys get back we got back christmas eve so december 24th here so right around the time the covid situation was really starting to emerge in that hemisphere were were you at all keeping up with it on that side of the of the world yet had it had it become news over there well, we didn't know anything about it and we we came home through china <laughs> so, oh wow yes i mean i knew nothing about it i didn't know there was i mean to us there was nothing so yeah that's incredible when you got home and you started to see so christmas going into january that's right around the time we start getting the the breaking news out of china that this thing is spreading that this coronavirus nobody knows about it's the first time this has come up there's so many questions about it the who is saying it's not a big deal then two weeks later it's a pandemic right so talk to me about how it's starting when you first got back and you started hearing it what was that initial reaction having been over there was there any fear or was there any uncertainty having come from there if you needed to go to get tested anything like that no, because by the time I even realized it, because I'm not a big news guy, um, we were well beyond <laughs> the time frame that would have been of any concern. I mean, 
Yeah. I mean, and for the first week, you're in jet lag so bad that you didn't know whether or not you're coming or going. Mm. And so by the time we got to New Year's and kind of got rolling again, I mean, yeah, it was, we didn't know. I didn't even know anything was going on well in advance past 14 days. And by now I know I'm good. <laughs> I mean, from there, I mean, I'm not saying I couldn't get something from this side of the world, but. Oh, for sure. And so with your business, did, did it start to impact you at all or has it impacted you at all so far in, you know, we're what, almost 90 days into this, starting from January into now going into early um, or late April, going into May, how how has your business uh, been affected? Yeah, it's been, it's been affected um, immensely because we were put as an unessential. And so we've been shut down officially since March 19th or March 20th. And so um, we were running full speed until the governor announced that tomorrow you're done. <laughs> um, so it was catastrophic. Literally, we were in Texas and at the time. So we were spending the winter there uh, and we got word and I started to feel uncomfortable really fast. I had just flown home from a hearth and barbecue show in New Orleans and I was going to fly back to Pennsylvania for a a transition uh, with a staff, um, staff member. And on the flight back from New Orleans, which was the the week before the 19th. So it was about the 11th. I'm going to say of March, things were going really fast all of a sudden. And they were talking about canceling things and all the um, basketball. I was sitting at a a restaurant and they said that dude today, they just said about basketball. I mean, there was a talk and the buzz and I'm jumping on a plane in, in just like literally a couple hours. And that's when fear started hitting me actually for the Mm. real first time uh, because I was actually out in it. Um, cause I was like, Oh crap, you know, here I'm sitting on a plane, you know, am I going to put myself at risk? Exactly. And so I was, I was unnerved for those next 14 days, to be honest with you. And, but in that time I got home, I was going to fly the next Wednesday. So that was like a Friday night. And by Tuesday, Monday night, I told my wife, I was like, I'm feeling super uncomfortable. And if we, if things start shutting down in borders and this goes really nuts, I need to be closer to my team in that time yet. I was not thinking that they would shut a business down. I just, I wasn't there. Naiveness, I don't know, but I just wasn't there. I wasn't really concerned about it super much, Right. but it changed in 24 hours. So we start heading home. We were going to, we left on Tuesday morning. We're like, okay, we're going to do a soft trickle home. We'll try to be home by Sunday. That way we were there for Monday of the next week. No big deal. Well, the pressure kept going higher and higher. We were home by Friday afternoon. Um, by Tuesday, by Wednesday night, I text my one employee and said, you know what, I'm just going to put it out there. I know I sound crazy, but by next week, we're going to have to stay at home. We're going to stay at home order by within 20 minutes. I get a text message from someone else saying the governor of Pennsylvania is shutting down all non-essential business, uh, Friday. I'm like, you what? <laughs> so no, this was Thursday night. Sorry. I was Thursday night because it was the next day. So I go into full gear cause I knew I couldn't be home in time. So I get on the phone with the guys first thing in the morning. I said, okay, guys, let's prepare uh, to come back. Let's prepare that we're going to be closed down end of day today, but that we're going to be able to come back to work on Monday so that we leave ourselves in the best position possible because we can't react fast enough and put everything where we need to. And I mean, it was a blur. I mean, I'm trying to drive back the rest of that last day. And by the time I got home at 4.30 that evening, 
business was closed and we have not re physically reopened uh, since. So Monday oh. morning of that next week, we laid off the entire staff. Oh my goodness. That's definitely going to be hard. And, and to, to talk about the fact that we can't keep up with the headlines, like when Quentin and I first started talking before we, we started this show, we were recognizing these patterns and, and back in January, February, come into March when things really started to hit the fan, you know, we were already talking to each other about, man, we need to be prepared for June and July, maybe even into August. And, and you start getting into these pattern recognition and then following the news. But to, to your point, right, you, you can't keep up with the headlines because you think, yeah, they're going to close South by Southwest, right? They're going to, they're going to announce that I'm in Texas. So I follow the, that, that conference. And there were, there was a lot of buzz about canceling South by Southwest. And as soon as South by Southwest closed, I put a tweet out there and I said, next up is the Houston rodeo. And everyone, you know, when, when KHOU, which is the local channel around here, they were saying, you know, Houston rodeo is still going on. Everybody's going on their merry way. They've got, you know, 50,000 in attendance at any given time in, in the back of my head. And I would leave comments on, on those live feeds of, of the Houston rodeo. And I would say, you guys need to be prepared that they're going to close down the rodeo. And every reply back was no way they're not going to do it. It's too big. It's never been canceled. They're not going to do it a week later. Right. Couldn't keep up with the headlines a week later, the Houston rodeo shuts down. And it was just as fast as that. Like there was a tweet that uh, some news reporters put out there that they're expecting to close it. And then within an hour, they had a press conference and it wasn't like we're going to slowly shut down. You know, we're going to have a couple more shows. We're going to limit the attendance. It was, you guys need to be out of here by four o'clock. Yeah. And that's just amazing that things escalated so quickly. Yet we, we see in the media right now that we didn't act fast enough. We haven't done enough. We need to be more draconian. We need to be a little bit more uh, authoritarian in, in some of the things that we've been doing. And now that some states are starting to open up, one of the patterns that I've been recognizing is, okay, states are opening up and Texas opens up tomorrow, for the most part opens up tomorrow. And right away, the headlines are 10,000 dead in one day or 10,000 new cases with 310 dead in one day. I'm like, well, I didn't see that coming. So we're going to open up the states and then the next round of headlines is going to be cases jump, cases on the rise. We should have never opened up. See, we told you, you should have never gone out. Tell me a little bit about the impact that it had on the business with respect to having to lay off your pretty much your entire staff, correct? How yeah, did, how that, did that affect them? And, and were, were there any, were there any backup plans to keep them on for a certain time? Are you taking advantage of any of the, the PPP loans that are out there to keep your, your employees on? So basically, when you're not legally allowed to work, keeping them on does you what? And that's the challenge that I'm in right now. Because if I burn through cash right now, um, we can't restart because it's going to take extra cash to restart. So what we've been doing is my wife and I decided we're not taking a paycheck and we're busting our chops. So we're here building furniture every single day. We're still shipping about 80 to 100 pieces of furniture a week minimum. And We've pivoted to dot-com business excessively, very aggressively, because all of our brick-and-mortar customers are closed down for the most part. Um, and we know that there are other businesses that have chosen to bring staff back in pretty aggressively. Now, um, mostly it's just my wife and I, um, but 
if we say no, and this is what's happening all around us, whether it's a roofer, whether or not it's a kitchen company, I'm here in a shop in the same facility with a kitchen guy. And here in Pennsylvania, we're not very far from Jersey, Delaware, Maryland. So if Jersey, Maryland, and Delaware don't close down construction or they don't shut down kitchen manufacturing, where are they going to go? Across the state line because they need their kitchen. It's an essential. Well, the same thing happens, and this is what's killing small business right now. So that's why we aggressively swung. I mean, I am shipping more product this week in one week than we would ship in probably in two months for .com just this week. So we pivoted immediately coming out of the gate. We have some, um, some aggressive relationships that we are focusing on and I've hit a lot of marketing support. Uh, mostly for us, we have certain products that we ship in 48 hours called a quick ship program. And we didn't have pictures of every color combination done. So I've been like working overtime to have representation of every color palette available in it so that it makes it easier for the dot-com experience. Should have been done before? Yeah. But like I've been coaching other businesses, if we don't take this opportunity of downtime and work on our businesses in every area that we've been saying that we just don't have time to get to, we are really making a bad choice because we've been given a famine or a time to put fertilizer into to let the land rest, right? Whether or not it was our time, it wasn't mine for sure, planned. Um, if I don't take advantage of it, it's my loss. Sure. And so even though it's been dis- there's been extreme discouraging parts of it, I am busier now than I've ever been. And it's because I'm working on pivoting, working on strategy. And because we're not a huge company, um, I'm I'm saying this so that I can come back and listen to this, I guess, but I'm I am looking that we will literally double our business in the next 18 months. That's amazing. Because I believe the pivoting that we're doing and the regain of then the other clientele back, I believe a wholeheartedly across our companies that yeah, we'll we'll see the excessive growth. And and we're doing that in the Facio side as well as Daybreak side. So Daybreak is a line of outdoor furniture made out of recycled milk jugs. The problem was our manufacturer of the product was in Illinois, and they were closed down. A company that runs 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, they were closed down for over four weeks. I haven't seen, I'm afraid I haven't, we haven't seen the end of it because if we get a burst coming out of this, and they were closed down for that long. The supply chain issue around America is going to hurt us worse than the epidemic and sure. the period of time that I haven't been able to work. Because if I can't get stuff to build product, I had over $140,000 of the raw goods sitting here stand still. So I have to burn through that, but a lot of it was for sold. The problem with it is if the company I'm buying from, I don't know what their reserves are like because they are big but neither do I know what my competitors are doing. So I can't just go spend cash right now that I don't have speculating that they're going to run out. Neither can I speculate that I'm going to run out. Mm. It's, it's a crazy, just, we, we talked about this in past shows, fight, flight, or freeze. And we're all just kind of like, where do we go? What do we do? And, and if you're not taking advantage, if you're not pivoting, if you're not at least thinking about what the next steps are, you're definitely going to be hurting your business to back up a little bit. So your, your father started a woodworking business when you were 16 years old. Is that what got you into the furniture business? How did, how did daybreak poly furniture come about? So my dad's been in furniture since he's 16. I was born and raised in sawdust. 
right. and was building custom furniture by the time I was 16 years old. So basically what happened was my dad, when I was young, needed marketing work done. And I was one of the boys that liked the computers the most. So he bought me Photoshop and I started designing his literature. And did you enjoy woodworking at the time? Was that something it, that you enjoyed then doing? grew into doing it for other people. So I, so I had a crossroads where I literally, yes, I would have, if someone would have told, asked me when I was younger, if I was ever going to be out of woodworking, I would have said never in a million years. Like this is just in my DNA. I was born and raised in Saltus. I'll never go away from it. And then around 20 or 21, I made the cut, even though I'd started the marketing company because by age 21, I had 10 or 15, 10 or 12 employees. So it had grown quite fast and I had to make a choice. I couldn't ride both fences. And so I got out of furniture or quit working for my dad and went into marketing full time. And at that point, then I said, I'm never going to be back in furniture again. I always say that you say never, you will end up doing it. So I guess that was my my way back in. So, yeah, but I, I didn't get back into furniture in the indoor. So we, we, we got into the outdoor space because it really tied in with our RV, uh, the RV side and we love the outdoors. So right. I'm more passionate about it because it's fulfilling for the guest what we have passion for, which is definitely family memories outside around the fire, doing those outside activities. So, so you mentioned that the, the product itself is made from recycled milk jugs, right? Tell me a little bit more about that process. How does that work? And is that a marketing, a marketing bullet point? The fact that it's greener, is that something that you, you tout? I mean, it is one of the areas. Um, it was definitely more aggressively that way earlier on in the product life. Um, now it's, it's available in, we're at 28 colors. They have now replicated the product to look like wood. So we have some products out there that literally looks like wood, but it's made out of milk jugs. Um, so it's plastic more than anything. So it's plastic looks like wood and it's heavy like wood. So it, it has weight for windy areas, things like that. And it's very durable because the colors the whole way through it. So if I'm cutting an arm out. It's colored pink the whole way through. There is no painting, no staining, no anything to it. You can't paint it, actually. Um, paint won't adhere to it. When it comes to that particular business, so when, when all of this talk of non-essential and, and essential, you know, there are a lot of RVers that were protesting not being able to leave certain campgrounds or, or not being able to go to new campgrounds. Did you experience any of that? living in an RV or do you already have a dedicated plot where you're you're pretty much stationed anyways or have you encountered any other RV families that were essentially either stuck or just had nowhere to go because all the RV places were were not letting anybody in yeah that was probably one of the big second biggest reasons why we we came flying back to Pennsylvania because both my parents and my in-laws are here. And so I was like, well, if we come, if worse comes to worse, we can park in the driveway or do something crazy. But we immediately started calling around to before the real lockdown happened. And we're able to secure a monthly site at a location, a campground that um, has seas, not seasonal, but um, people that rent sites there by the month more as a living arrangement. Um, but any of the recreational ones that we normally stay at, we were going to already be gone from that campground and be over at our normal ones. And they're just finally opening 
this weekend for the seasonals and, and opening next weekend for the public. So um, we're still locked into renting by the month here at that location. But we were very gra- uh, grateful and blessed to be able to do that because uh, uh, it was security of it. Um, yeah, there was friends of ours though that we were working with that, I mean, they couldn't get another reservation, but they didn't know if they're going to get kicked out of where they were. I mean, it was, it was, it was bad. <laughs> yeah. My in-laws were facing the same thing there. Uh, they were supposed to go down to, I believe, Georgia and, and Florida coming in the next few months. And they were just, they, they were at a standstill. They, they couldn't stay any longer at where they were. They, they were able to get an extension. Uh, long story short, they, they got the extension to stay there, but they just didn't know where they were going to go. And, and I imagine that's, a big hurdle that a lot of RV families right now are, are trying to to figure out, right? So if they're full-time traveling, for instance, Scott and, and, and Lindsay, his wife, they pretty much said, we're not going anywhere for the foreseeable future. So they're fortunate enough to have property here and they, they can have a home base and a couple other RVers are joining them. But there, there's a whole nother, I mean, there's retirees and, and millennials who are, are living their life, right? They're living the best life in an RV, the van life, and they just, they're stuck. They're either stuck in a state that doesn't really welcome them to begin with, or they're stuck in, in a place that they just don't have family and friends, and it's that isolation, that's that mental health that everyone's been talking about, right? That, that people have been cooped up for too long. There was a survey quite recently that 100% of the, the respondents of this survey said that if things don't open up more in June, by mid-June, that they're going to literally go crazy. And this wasn't like a Babylon Bee article. This was a legit article that was talking about a survey where 100% of the respondents said mid-June. What are some of the things that you're seeing in your state or just in the news that you're following that you, you, you're starting to recognize some of those patterns? Are people around you starting to get stir crazy? Are our employees calling you up saying, when, when can we get back to work? When are we going to get this show on the road? Yeah, I have not been in a retail establishment since the first Saturday we got back. So it was March 20th or so. And I'm about going stark crazy. I mean, I'm just going between the RV and here. Every, and that's all I've been. I've been to the grocery store. I've been to a hardware store. I mean, I stopped for fuel once just outside. That was it. And there's a part of it with my personality that now it's a game because if I don't turn it into a game of like, how long can I stay out of a retail store through this entire process? And possibly even when I'm allowed to go back, um, I would go nuts. And I feel like I'm a pretty strong person. So it doesn't surprise me. I mean, and I'm not stuck at home just every day. I mean, the folks that, or by yourself. Or by myself. I mean, but then there's others that I'm communicating with, even employees that I'm just like, dude, like I'm trying to just figure out how to help them along to stay engaged. Because my Mm. fear is that we keep talking about wanting to do, but it's kind of like a long, lazy vacation. And it Mm. can literally start to mess with your mind, I believe, on almost not, it's hard to restart. Even though in our heads, we want to restart. Yeah. And that's, I think, what's starting to happen to our brains because I'm, I'm even feeling that way in, in going to a store. Like I'm like, just order it online because I'm like, like I just, I haven't been to a store in over four weeks. Like, why should I start going now? I do want to go out and do what I want to do. But on the other hand, you see what I'm saying? Like, it's almost like your brain starts to go freaky places and I'm even scared. Yeah. I mean, not scared, but I'm like, my brain is like, like, wow, this is crazy. It's, it's the programming and just the way you reformat, I should say. Um, 
That's wild. a great way of putting it, the, the programming that's happening. And, and you can see that in the news, just w- when you read enough news and you don't read just one dot com news, you start to see the both sides are talking out of both sides of the of the mouth. Right. So you get this is the worst thing that's ever happened. We're all going to die if we don't stay inside. And then you get the we need to open up and, and you know, get the show on the road where we're going to just completely annihilate the economy. Quentin, you had some thoughts. Yeah, so I'm I'm usually kind of like the economic doomsayer on the program. I, I find uh, interesting things that are going to be problematic for us in the future and talk about them. But I'm not going to do that. I actually have a bunch of uh, really interesting topics to talk to you about. So number one, uh, my dad's paternal grandmother, actually her family came from Lancaster, PA, and they were like Anabaptist Germans. Uh, I, from a group that ended up becoming either like Mennonite or Amish. I can't, I can't remember, but they they came to Texas back in the day. And so that's cool. Uh, I think that's pretty awesome. That's a very good background to have. And I'm sure it's taught you a lot of skills um, and ethics and, and ways of behaving and interacting with customers and coworkers and the business world that I would find very interesting. And I really want to hear your opinion on your, your Mennonite background and how, how that shaped your worldview and how you interact in the business world. Yeah. So definitely going back to work ethic, um, it can be to a fault. Uh, I've been up since 4am this morning and was threatening to work until one or two o'clock in the tomorrow morning, um, tonight. And so it has a good and a bad, right? So Drive, motivation, and good work ethic is amazing. Um, my my desire is to is balance, right, and and all of that. But when you see it around you, um, you just continue to do it, right? Even though we're not necessarily part of that community to the same degree anymore, it's just still in your DNA. You just continue to do, <laughs> keep con- continue doing it. So, uh, yeah. And in you know, the, the Mennonites have a very specific ethical background and, and kind of a moral template. And what, what do you take from that and incorporate in your own business dealings? How does that help shape your business ethics, I guess is what I'm asking. Yeah. Um, it is impacted it both ways. So definitely honesty is something that we're, we're trained in, you might say, from a very young age. And, and I'm not saying it's just part of that yeah. culture, but it's a very big deal. It um, is, yeah. And that's huge. Um, but then there's also can be another side of it that not saying that everyone does, but I caught a good uh, amount of um, aggressiveness behind that as well. <clears throat> so be- because it was sometimes challenging to get places, um, manipulating the system sometimes can become part of that, uh, even with if it's just with in the the church boundaries it can sometimes carry out into your business life and so that's been a challenge for me in more years gone by um to not use that power of saying i'm a mennonite or i only went to eighth grade or manipulating the system by using cop-out excuses per se and in the time sometimes not even realizing that it wasn't ethical in my opinion now i just like no don't use that uh, as your cop out in it. So, but definitely, I mean, that was why I skipped college because we weren't allowed to go to college. And so I jumped into business very young and just continued pushing right up through that. So 
talking more about how it formed me, <laughs> that was a huge forming thing because I talked to a lot of people and we didn't get to talk about everything that I've done, but I mean, I've done house flipping and real estate and all these different things. I've acquired both of the businesses that we're running today uh, from either Amish or other Mennonite folks. And just all of that. And they're like, how do you do without college? And it's like, well, I don't know, just went through 10th grade in school and learned some math and went out and, and hit it hard. Um, and that work ethic is what did it because I ran through a lot of hard things, but continued just coming back and saying, no, push through it. Very cool. Yeah, I can honestly say that I learned nothing in college and I was mostly just self-taught my whole life. I just, it, it was a, uh, <laughs> If I if I had you know uh, advice to give to my kids, it would be to do exactly what you did and not to do what I did. I I, I did things the hard way, and uh, and I was an entrepreneur, and I just didn't pursue uh, what it was that I was good at or what was important to me entrepreneurially. And when I was young, I didn't have somebody uh, pushing me in that direction, and it was a it was a real regret. Um, and so. You know, me and my wife actually really considered um, the RV lifestyle um, years ago. We thought that was really cool. And that was something we really wanted to do because we do everything. We're surrounded by very materialistic people. And uh, we get judged a lot because we're not materialistic. And we don't really care about the things that we own. We, they don't define us. Like our occupation doesn't define who we are. The things I own don't define me. And like everything we do, we put away a lot of money and everything we do is for our kids and their future. So they don't have to struggle the same way we have. And uh, so we really contemplated that as a good way to educate our kids, travel around the country and to, you know, give them life experiences that we didn't have, but yet live within our means and provide money for a very, uh, you know, impactful or, you know, uh, you know, just a future that we didn't really get to have, you know, and we got really criticized for that when we were telling people that, but I think it's a great lifestyle and I, I, I'm still pretty interested in it. I've always have been. And so, um, what would you say to a family wanting to consider a lifestyle like that, the kind of nomad entrepreneur lifestyle and what resources would be available to those people to help pursue that dream? So what I would say, first of all, what are you waiting for? Um, that would be the first thing. Number two, you made a comment that you really don't care what people think about your material things. Maybe you just need to choose to think the same thing about your desire to live in an RV or to live in that way. Because really, it's mind over matter. And if you care about the opinions, you won't do it. Because there's either there's going to be someone that's going to try to weigh in heavily about why can't my grandkids and if it's not them it's going to be a brother and if it's not them it's going to be someone in the that you care about right so it's going to be someone but that's about everything we do in life and so from that standpoint that was kind of where we've now been going like we want to do an international uh, trip every single year this year is probably going to be our off year or not do something as major um but we finally came to that conclusion that there's never a better time and we keep telling ourselves that in life. It's like, well, in two years from now, the kids are going to be out of diapers. And then it's going to be, and then when they hit that stage, it's like, oh crap, soon they're going to, they're going to be here. And then we won't have to like have them in a little, you know, chain thing. So we know that they're staying with us. And by the time you reach that spot, then it's this, right? So it's never going to stop. So basically you have to know why you want it, put that action plan in place and just do it. 
Um, that's my encouragement. Are there resources? Absolutely. Uh, there is a big community called Full-Time Families and Full-Time Families does an amazing job just because it's a community of so many families to be able to be a sounding board on any question under the sun that you might have. I mean, there is no subject matter that someone hasn't dealt with. There's even some people that have written books. Um, there's a Lundy family that have traveled. Uh, all of their kids are now out of the house, but they've traveled for 10, 12 years, possibly, I think it is. And they've written a book. There's just, there are resources, books out there now, because there's so many people. I mean, there's thousands of families. That's why this whole RV thing during this, you know, whole episode has been so major because, I mean, there are people everywhere and not just tourists. I'm talking people that literally live in their RV like we do 365 days a year what was it so like running the also, business so that yeah, has changed yeah so that Sorry. has definitely changed throughout the years um we acquired a company in 17 another company in 18 um so we've done a lot of different things while we're doing it. and and what we bought into was the manufacturing side before that I was running more the marketing and we were buying real estate. We have real estate in T Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, and then we were doing house flipping as well. So those are, you know, a little more virtual friendly, but I, um, when I, I'm working on the factory floor now, but I have not worked on the factory floor since. Wow before we went to Bali. So that, that was September. So I really haven't worked on the shop floor in, in nine months. And my goal was not to be at the factory more than three months cumulatively this entire year. And so basically I believe and think multi-locational. So I, I don't like the word virtual because virtual is in your pajamas, you know, I, I just the connotation, but multi-locational has a different connotation. So our order entry is done in the Philippines. Um, we have support people all over the world. Um, we don't have people really here at the office. And, and so like my wife uh, does a lot of the bookkeeping. I do a lot of projects uh, from product design, development, um, rep support, things like that from abroad. So it's, it was mindset though. So the mindset, the Bali trip changed our minds and I wish we would have went to Bali or somewhere like that sooner because we were 12 hours different in time on top of being gone for three months. And that's two very unique things to go through because when I'm away from home in the States, I still would fly back and forth pretty regularly. This was the first time, and I have the plaque now, which I haven't made one yet, but I have a plaque I can hang on the wall and the team and we all can remind ourselves that this happened. This is a stone, a memorable stone that we can't take away from ourselves, no matter what hardships we go through in the future, that I wasn't here for three months and you guys know how to do it and that I can, we can lead and communicate and do what we need to do no matter how many locations we're at. It's about culture, it's about communication, and it's about format. What were some of the communication tools that you were using? So in, in the tech community, we use things like Slack and Discuss and Discord and, and some of these other um, chat rooms, essentially. You know, the, the email is not necessarily the best place to, to communicate, especially if you want real-time communication. What were some of the tools that you guys were using to, to communicate back and forth? Right. Because I was 12 hours apart, I didn't want anything but email because I would get woken up Makes in sense. the middle of the night. So basically, I, we had it more set up on a, um, 
I would usually work, okay, I'm, I'm reversing my times here. So right now they're just getting, uh, it's about 9.30 in the morning there-ish. So at 6 o'clock, 4.30 in the afternoon here when they were leaving, I, um, roughly I would say, you guys send me all your questions. So when I wake up in the morning, I'll dispatch out all your answers to everything. And that way we might be able to catch, we kind of caught each other two times a day, kind of, but the way the clock rolled. So I would usually stay up late in the evening to be with them more in the morning. So I would stay up till 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night. And that brought me to about lunchtime here. So then I was able to answer some of the repeat out of the questions I answered. So if I answered all the questions, quote, in their evening, they had the questions in the morning. If they had any follow-up questions, they could bounce them back to me. But what it did was this. I believe ease of communication is a real decay for responsibility and decision-making because we've created this world where if I don't know the answer and I don't care to look for the answer, and I'm not saying that it's always done this way or that everything is because we don't want to find it. It's just easy to ping it off to someone else. Mm. And so what I didn't want to see in this was, well, what about this? No, look it up. Myron's sleeping right now. And if you don't, if it's, if you can't figure it out, I need, I want to know that when it comes to me, it's because it's life or death and you just can't figure it out. And that I know the seriousness of it is you need my help. Yeah. Napoleon it worked really well. Napoleon was, was quoted as saying, you know, do not wake me up unless it's bad news. He didn't care about the good news. He didn't care about any trivial uh, battle that had been won. He didn't care about the decisions. He he left it up to his generals. He left it up to his lieutenants, all of his subordinates to set, to figure it out, to truly seek and look for the answers themselves and not to use the open door policy, quote unquote, as, as a crutch to not looking things up for yourself, not having uh, a responsibility to move forward, to move the ball forward. Um, so I, I really like the fact that you use, uh, what was it, multi-locational instead of virtual. I think that's a really great uh, buzzword to put out there a little bit more. Yeah, so we had an amazing trip. It taught my wife and I a lot. It taught the team a lot. Um, and that's really where we came up with the more multi-locational. And our mindset switch has com uh, come a lot more aggressively alive um, because before we felt attached to PA because that's where the businesses were and when we got back and we got settled in and flowing we're like wait a minute the business location does not determine my physical home base location and that was a light bulb moment for us for others, it may not be that complicated, but for us, because this is where our, this is where our roots are, this is where our businesses are, we just felt like our domicile had to be here. And this is where home base was. We're like, we're in an RV. We can make home anywhere. We can make our home base anywhere in the world if we desire to. And that mind switch is what got us into multi-locational mindset because now it's like, we can have corporate offices in Texas or wherever, right? We can choose wherever. Like corporate offices don't even need to be here. So it's about mindset that we could have any company. I mean, a lot of companies have locations all over the world or all over the U.S. And so that just opened our minds. It was our journey, at least, on just starting to just go to the next level. Um, and if it wasn't for COVID-19, I mean, it would even look more different than it does now. But I wanted to stop for a minute on that because I just brought up COVID-19 again. And that is this. It was the largest gift coming out of 
this three months away. And then we were home for three weeks and I went to Texas and we were there until we came back in March. So since September, I was only here in PA for like three weeks. And a lot of amazing things happened. It was amazing. But the we're going to become stronger because of this COVID-19, because I, I lifted the lid off the bucket. And now that things are kind of out of it, I'm like, wait a minute, why in the world is this in our bucket? And so we've been finding things because we're serious about it, because we've paid off 600,000, over 650,000 in debt in the last 24 months. We're very aggressive to be debt. We're hoping to be debt free by this year. Amazing. And still believe it's going to be possible. It's going to be challenging. Um, but we're looking in the bucket going, why was this happening? What was this going on? Oh, wait a minute. So our business is going to look totally different again when we come out of COVID-19. Like it is going through a transformation right now that is going to look totally different again. But what I'm, I wasn't happy about originally, but I'm super stoked now that I believe we just gained two years of expediting our goal in where we were heading, coming out of Bali, coming back, all of that. If I would have not been here but three months this year, we would have lost more money that I wouldn't have realized was going on as I'm becoming a distant but involved boss. As we're setting up for multi-locational mindset that I might not be here. Also hiring people coming out of this that Myron is not here. So right away in their minds that we're changing our domicile. We're in that process of saying we're not Pennsylvania residents anymore and um, choosing the, the state in which we will call our home base where we will go maybe park for six months. Because in our minds, we're saying PA is not our domicile state anymore. And so we're bringing people on with that in mind and making sure that they're aware of that and that, yes, I'm very involved in day-to-day -day ops. I'm very involved in the culture, very involved in the vision, the product design and development and all of that. But I can do that over in this state in that small factory as well. And as part of COVID-19, we were pivoting into other market spaces. So it'll go on for hours if I keep going. But yeah, I, I think it's the biggest gift that all of us have. I mean, if we're not taking sure. it as that, we're missing out. We've been calling it the hard reset for, for a lot of things, yeah. financially, mentality, the economy, how we do things on, on a day-to-day -day basis, Quentin. This, this moment will define us as a nation and it can, it can define us in a, in a way that's extremely positive and moves us forward with a, an abundance of independence, or it can just <clears throat> make us more dependent on this system and more dependent on others and, and cripple us. It's, it's all what we choose to do with this time. So I wanted to, speaking of the virus and how it's affected uh, business, you know, one of the reasons we're in this mess financially as a nation is because of our interdependence and outsourcing and our economy being so tied to those who may not have our best interest at heart. You're an American company. You make furniture. How do you stay competitive in the world of Ikea and Chinese junk furniture, disposable furniture, you know, at, at big box? What, what, are the, what are the things that you do to keep that competitive edge and, and to uh, make sure that your your competition doesn't, you know, end up just swamping you. We are supported by Aerial Digital. 
Ariel Digital is a full-service digital marketing agency that specializes in custom-designed websites for small to medium-sized businesses. Whether you need a simple one-page bootstrap website or you're ready to start selling your products online with an e-commerce website, Ariel Digital is equipped to help your business. Go to arieldigitalmarketing.com slash newnormal. That's A-R-I-E-L digitalmarketing.com slash newnormal and save 20% on your custom website today. Yeah, so in, in, in every segment of business, um, I call it the three levels. So good, better, best. And so definitely our product with a 20-year warranty, we're in the best category. It's just, I can't put it anywhere else because a 20-year warranty in an outdoor product just puts it through the moon or put it through the roof. So what we try, what I'm, what we try to do is try to find our market space where we can get the most attraction and the most, um, the most growth out. Because if if we try to, yeah. So basically, we are aiming for the design group. So we're we're putting more effort into the designs, the cosmetics, hiding screws, so that we can go into more like. In Houston, I went to the big um, patio store that are called Patio One, um, very elite. Like that's where we try to, that's where we're trying to put our products. We're trying to hide all the screws from the outside. That's very normal in this industry to make it look, my whole motto is bringing indoor out. So we're literally doing turned leg lathe tables, bendings, all of that stuff that was known more for the indoor space and I'm doing it in outdoor furniture from my indoor experience and my connections saying we can turn this world upside down because people love what they have indoors. Let's bring it outside in a product that they don't have to paint stain and do all of that. So we have chosen not to try to enter at price point at this moment. And what I'm finding is, and what we try to do is I try, I always say where you make money in life is how you sell and how you buy. And so, yes, our product is recycled here in America, and we look very aggressively at how we buy. So we buy tractor and trailer load volume um, when we can, um, winter buys, things like that, so that we can keep our pricing as competitive as possible. Um, I'm also very focused on lean and efficiencies. And so um, we shipped 20 gliders the other day and we can, we can cut lumber in the morning. And if I were to stagger it, if we had to, we could ship those 20 gliders by the next morning. Um, Like, how are you in automation? How is that? uh, Is that something you're implementing in your business? Is that something that you see moving forward? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm even thinking robotic but I would prefer to keep humans on it. So, but I'm trying to think like, we're always looking at fewest steps. How can they do it more efficiently and et cetera. And so we're trying to do a lot more on CNC routers. Um, so if I can put that lumber on the CNC 15, 20 minutes later, it comes off all the parts. All I got to do is put the soft edging on it and take it to assembly. I have a win on my hands because I can continue putting those pieces of equipment in, not dehumanizing my relationship, but if I know fixed expense with an amazing product, drilled the same way, cut the same way every single time, 15 minutes, I can have that chair off ready to go into processing. We can become more competitive if I can buy my volumes of lumber at better and continue reducing my price by five, six, seven percent. And we're selling like this week, our dot, uh, dot com business is one of the majors. Like I'm talking like the hay needle 
styles of the world, though it's not them. It's the hay needle styles of the world. Why? Because people are still buying American made. And I think the switch is going to come. And so we're ramping up mentally, physically, emotionally, because if people can't get their outdoor furniture across the pond right now, they need something, want something yet this summer or in the near future. We're American made and we're proud of it. Yeah, I don't. And I don't so, buy foreign furniture for all the reasons you said. You know. Yeah. And I so like we're trying to continue trying to, to keep. We do want to lower our price, but I always say, don't. I don't want to hurt our value because the value of what we're producing. So if we do that, I come from a brand background. We have other. We have another brand that we'll put that furniture under so that it does not mar our main brand. Because I'm not saying we don't want to go to maybe the. Sure. The next level down or be able to support that because i always say if i can only support the 20 percent of america and my wheelhouse because we're manufacturing that's what fascio does we do private label manufacturing we build more units for other companies than our own meaning we build thousands and thousands of units for other outdoor lawn furniture competitors per se people that have their own recipes someone comes to me and says hey i want to build a chair like this and sell it they market their own goods. We build it for them under their name. So even Rolex already, has the yeah. Tudor, you know, right. they have, they have a house brand. It's, it's a great brand. So a lot of companies do that. We're exercising our growth muscles on other people's dollars, meaning we're not having to market everything that we sell. So we might sell eight, eight or 9,000 units a year. And in furniture, that's a lot because it's not just a little widget <laughs> that we're building for brands that are on our own. That's awesome. And that helps us in our brands because we can afford to buy better equipment, more efficient equipment for our lines of furniture because we're using it for the broader network, which is why we have Fascio and we also have our own lines of products. So we're seeing that transition already with some of the memes that are that are out there with uh, Buy American, Stop Supporting China. What are some of the things that you're implementing to take advantage of that mentality, that, that shift, that light switch that you were just talking about, where people are going to want to start buying American made, made in the USA tags. What, what are some of the marketing initiatives and campaigns that you are either about to implement or have already implemented to get that ramp up? Yeah, so unfortunately, um, America's program for quick. And so we have developed an entire brochure of our products with limited options that's quick ship. And that ships in 48 hours if you order by 2 p.m. We are now rolling out a limited edition of same-day ship if ordered by 2. I'm messing with my own head, but I believe it's the Amazon of high-quality furniture. And so I look at that and say, if that can gain me another segment of business, I'm not, I don't want to be foolish. But I believe that that's a part of the programming that's around me. And so if I don't support the programming that the 98% buy on, I'm the stupid one. So we're trying to look strategically and saying, okay, we're an instant gratification country. And they want American made. The Amazon is programmed for two days. We're going to do high quality, handcrafted, American-made furniture shipped in 48 hours. That's amazing. And we've been now beta testing that before this happened. And this week alone, we've shipped 
30 pieces of furniture, 20, 25, 30 pieces of furniture on that program. So and mind you, that's sixteen to $20,000 of the wholesale furniture that we would have had zero if we would not have swung the pendulum and said, you know what? Dot-com is our friend. I've got competitors, and I'm not saying they're making a wrong choice, but they're saying, you know, the web is a hassle, all this stuff. And I'm saying it's my lifeline. It's right. now going to become its own entire business model. So this year, heading in before COVID, like last year, we were beta testing three modules. The online, the brick and mortar, and hospitality. I didn't realize to the degree I do today that if I would not have even started down the thought process, and because if we didn't have the boxes here, we didn't have the the foam machines, all the stuff to be able to package the ship at this level, we couldn't have done it. We could not have pivoted fast enough. So we were already pivoting, but then we swung hard. Right. And so that's my encouragement to business owners, entrepreneurs out there. If you're feeling something, start developing in that area. Don't wait for the crisis to happen to pivot because mm-hmm. then it's too late because the box companies have been delayed. I'm supposed to get a shipment tomorrow that I should have had last week. So if I would have been delaying too much, I couldn't be shipping product. And it's only going to get worse <laughs> coming out of this. That's great. With having to lay off most of your staff, how are you managing the the inventory in that respect? Um, carefully. <laughs> so basically right now, my wife and I are focusing most of our attention on the quick ship products and the custom orders. We're telling people that we're not open, which is true. And so that's our way of being able to kind of survive through this is we're focusing on that because that's the low hanging fruit right now. And it gets, and most of our dot-coms pay us within three to five business days. And that's also a very big help during a time like this when you're trying to, you know, at least make enough, even though we're not taking paycheck uh, enough to keep the rent and all the things, hopefully from going backwards. So our main goal right now is to come out of COVID-19 with all of our bills paid or at least current, because I don't know what this summer is going to, is going to be like. When your largest company you private label build for tells you to reduce your inventory like as if it's fall already and we haven't even hit spring, that's a lot of red flags, my friends. That's a lot of red flags. Yeah, and we were talking about in our last episode that people are just, they're they're thinking in that two-week window and truly they should start thinking in a two to three-year window. Because this is already being called the next depression. This is already being... uh, touted as something that we're going to be looking at the stock market trading sideways for quite some time, if not within the next two weeks. Again, going back to that pattern of we're going to reopen and then boom, we're going to get flooded with a lot more cases. So then the stock market hits that second crash, which puts us into not a recession, but a depression. So people really need to start thinking about the the two to three year window when it's when it's talking about that. So we've made some really hard decisions already, and that is that we're going to be soft restart, even if there's a lot of business there, because I do believe in a second swing. That's my opinion. This is going to come back to hit. The tail is going to come back and hit us. (laughs) Um, That's my opinion. And my concern is, is that we rehire too fast. They're doing this and then they're not going to help us out with unemployment on the second round with the rates. That's my, I have no proof. I'm just concerned. No, and also that is the next chain. show topic. That is actually <laughs> what I want to discuss the next show is how 
basically with this second reopening, what's going to get end up screwed up is unemployment insurance. Huge. Yes. Huge. And that's why and it's going to be pushed about, on the small business owner. Yeah, and you talked about, talk about the PPP. I have my, my I, we got approved for PPP. It just got funded yesterday. I'm scared to death to use it because yeah. I just came through an audit on sales tax. It was hell. It was, that's my, this is my interpretation all these different things. And so I looked at my wife and I said, if we're paying money out that we would not be paying in that payroll anyway, or we weren't planning to with our own plan, I don't think we should do it because if we do it and it gets forgiven, it should be a gift and we should be like, oh, that was nice. But I see businesses doing this and they're not bringing their people back to work because they can't. And they're telling them to stay home and have a vacation. And I'm looking at that and going, that just sounds like a really bad financial idea if you don't get it forgiven. You're going to come out with this huge debt load. And I always say this. If it's too good to be true, it's too good to be true. Because Absolutely. I, I, this is my fear. Like, If unemployment is souped up right now and the offerings to the business owner for the expenses that they're covering are very minimal, why don't I just leave my people in unemployment and shut down my business and ride out the storm and then go back full speed? as much as I can when it's over. Like, I just don't understand or call it something other than a loan. But when your banker puts the capital words in it, like I asked him, I was like, can you give me any tips to make sure that most of it is forgivable? He's like, my job is to, to help you get the, the thing. And he puts something in capital. I wish I could remember exactly what words it was like, um, so that you can do your best or something to get your money back or to be forgiven. It was done in a way that, professionally i don't think he could say but i wanted him to take his professional hat off and just tell me because i think he would have said good luck yeah yeah it's the wild wild west right now it's something i wanted to talk about on the next show but i'll just go ahead and kind of uh quickly talk about it you can tease it but uh yeah we'll tease it um and and the the our, I'm, i don't want to be critical of anybody really but uh the way our government has handled the response to small business. If it really is the pillar of the U S economy, which I truly believe it is, um, has been interesting. We'll, we'll call it that. And I'll go more into that, uh, on the next show. It, but, but if you look at the way it's being handled in other countries and the way we're handling it here, I don't want to say that they do want small business to cr- get crushed, but if we do this soft reopen, we know that, demand for products isn't going to increase very much. There's still going to be a huge portion of the population that is just going to stay at home and they're going to continue to drive down demand of products. And it's, it's going to cause problems for small businesses because if they do try to reopen their overhead and operational, their fixed costs could be so high that it actually just crushes them and they end up having to lay off employees. Well, now the government's off the hook. Instead of paying, you know, paycheck protection plan and actually providing stimulus, now it becomes an insurance crisis. It's not a government crisis anymore. That's huge. And that's a serious problem for the small business owner. It's a huge problem for our economy. And if it's done wrong, if the government mishandles this at this moment and we get hit with a second wave and demand goes to the toilet, which is very likely to do, then you're going to see the death of small business in this country forever. It will be absolutely crushed by big box. It will be absolutely crushed by Amazon. We will be serfs to these giant tech oligarchs and these giant retail oligarchs. It will be an absolute total total devastation of the small business economy in, in a way we've never seen before. 
Right. And that's my biggest fear. And, and that's what I want to talk about next show. But you, you brought it up and I'm, I'm glad you did. I really am. I'm really glad you did. Yeah, I'm, I'm, if I'm, if I have fear somewhere, it's that area because I, I'm, I'm very disturbed when we shut down the small, um, clothing store or the small store, no matter what, um, no matter what sector it is. And yet the Walmarts and the targets of the world are open and they're not fenced off those areas. They should be fenced off those areas, but it's unfair because they're able to sell the product that everyone else has shut down and can't sell. So for an example, Oh, they're responsible for our our reaction to this whole crisis. It's crazy. Home Depot can sell a cabinet to you and yet kitchen, all your small cabinet shops that literally the small shops all over America or PA for sure can't sell. Like, it's just like, really? And then what starts to happen is in PA, at least they didn't, they're denying waivers, but giving waivers to some others in the same industry. So roofing companies are now losing business to the waivered companies and the non-waivered can't do anything about it because the, the customer's like, well, so-and-so can do it because they have a waiver. Why don't you have it? Because some people in the same industry, there's no database of who got a waiver and who didn't. And to me, the reason there's not a database is because it's corrupt. It is. And I knew the second Walmart and Home Depot and all of these big box stores got brought in, that it wasn't, you know, if, it would be one thing if the federal government had totally taken control of the response to this giving stimulus, distributing food, maintaining security in the lockdown. But what they did and try to encourage the free market, I, I love this word because the free market has been completely bastardized, excuse my language at this point, but it's been, it's been totally bastardized. They bring in these huge big box conglomerates to try to coordinate the response. And I knew immediately it wasn't to promote free markets. You don't bring in oligarchs and conglomerates to do that. It's simply to consolidate. You will crush competition that way. If you allow monopolies to have this much market share in our fragile economy, the way it is right now, they will consolidate their power and they will own the economy and they will absolutely crush the average American. It, it, it is toxic. Yeah. I mean, I our closed down in small business right now already in what I call the first mild run of this epidemic i'm talking the entire depression recession everything of it is astronomically frustrating and discouraging we haven't even seen it start yet that's the that's the concern because i mean for rent signs people hauling out inventory and boarding up their stores why because anyone that's on the brink right now I don't want to be doomsayer because I like to be an encourager. They might as well box it up now before they go in the hole and can't get themselves back out as a family. Because the reality of it is that right now I'm blessed enough to be able to just my wife and I to be able to make stuff to a bigger network. But see, the problem is, and that's why we're, we're, you know, doing our, our change in direction is because we do have the ability as a manufacturer to be able to take our products to a lot of other places. But if you're a retailer in a town, you can only go so far and yeah, you can create a website and all of that and, and, and whatever, but you don't have the same power. And that's why we're being aggressive with what we're doing right now and trying to get spread very quickly, a lot of places, because that's our only hope of like the elephant feet to be able to stay up because of the footprint size. But as a small store, it's like, I'm sorry if I was going to talk to you right now, I'd say I'm praying for you and hoping the best. But 
get out if you feel you're going down fast because the hole is going to be super deep for your family for years and years and years. And I know it will be anyway. But I mean, you can't know go without rent money on a $5,000 lease month after month after month. Yeah, they, everyone is trying to get the bag, you know, and they they want the uh, the bag to sustain the business, but the bag is a, the lie. I mean, that that is a lie, and and all that is happening is a giant consolidation of big tech and big retail, and and I, that is super frightening. I mean, that can literally make Americans. It could further our position as consumer serfs, and you will see people live the Walmart lifestyle, which is hell. And that's basically, you know, minimum wage with Medicaid and, uh, you know, food stamps, you know, that's, that, that is your life. That, that, that is what will happen if, if you witness the death of the small business in this country. And I, for whatever reason, it seems like the government has primed that pump, whether they did it intentionally or accidentally, I don't know. Well, I mean, we've got this virus who is, the most intelligent virus we've ever had because it can di- differentiate between Walmart, Home Depot, Lowe's, and a nail salon. Oh yeah, yeah. And, and that's that's the most frustrating part. And and I've said it flippantly, and now it's gotten to the point where it's a little bit more realistic for people who I know, people who I see in town who are shuttering up, and it's becoming that reality of. You know, when, when when the first happened, my first reaction was, well, you shouldn't have been a hairdresser. You should have picked a better career, right? Look at what the, the meme that was going around was kids pay attention because look at what are the essential jobs. And it's now getting, for me personally, that heartbreaking reality of looking out into the world and saying, well, crap, they didn't make a bad choice. They just got handed a bag of crap right now. Like, this is just terrible. Yeah. And for us and and for like Walden Fenster, we had on our uh, show a couple episodes ago, having the mentality to diversify that income, having the mentality to pick yourself up by the bootstraps, if you will, and not be just stuck in the foxhole, actually getting up and doing something about it. So you talked about if you see a pivot, you need to either take a huge swing or sit down and pack up, right? This is fight or flight at this point. The freeze can no longer be a part of the conversation. This is fight or flight. And if we're looking at a two-week cycle of the stalemate, the, the two-week stalemate, as I think we've been calling it, is the fact that we've got people who are ready to open up, ready to go. We've got people who are saying, no, we're not going to do it. And then we've got another group that's saying, I'm going to watch everybody else and see what happens. So Quentin, you alluded to this, that we're about to have just two to three weeks of nothing, just nothing. People are going to open up, but no one's going to show up. No one's going to show up because everybody's watching to see who shows up. And then the people who do show up are going to be the ones that get, uh, allegedly, will be the ones that get COVID. And then we're going to have this huge upswing. And I don't know which is worse because, so if they do show up in mass, they might artificially spike demand, Okay. That's actually a problem because their attendance is going to cause a second wave. Their appearance at your business is going to increase the contraction of COVID. There's no doubt in my mind. There is no real immunity to this disease. Many people have said it. You're going to get the disease. You know, there's anecdotal evidence that in certain areas, more people than they thought had the disease. Now, in some areas, less people than they thought had the disease. 
So we're going to have a second wave. If the thing mutates, it becomes worse. This thing isn't selecting to become asymptomatic, unfortunately, because the incubation rate is extremely long. So it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to select to become less deadly. It already reproduces by the time it kills you. So it's, it's achieved its goal. That's very problematic. If you artificially spike the demand, then there's a massive drop-off when the second wave happens you're going to have glut and you're going to have deflation like we're seeing right now in so many other commodity markets. If we have a second wave of deflation, if it's mishandled, like we're, we're slaughtering so, many, uh, so much livestock, we're destroying so much produce. If that wave happens again, you're going to see starvation. You're going to see economic collapse on biblical proportions. And you're going to have a massive sick population on top of this economic crisis. And that is not something the country can survive. And I really don't know if our government just doesn't, I mean, I'm not trying to be a doomsayer. Like this is the map. You can just go plug in some numbers. You can just go, you know, take a look uh, at the economy and, and come up. It's just laws of supply and demand. It, it, there's also a mathematical equation behind how this virus spreads. I'm not sure what the end goal is for the government. We talked about in the past, they're locking people in Cheyenne Mountain, Mount Weather, Raven Rock. They're preparing for continuation of government protocol. That's pretty bad. If they don't handle this problem down the road and they artificially spike demand, we could be in for a, a, a calamity like we've never seen before, I, I, I'm afraid. Yeah, we're definitely at a point of no return in, in this particular situation. The new normal right, has already taken effect. We, we've already gotten to the point where it, 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 would, it would take a miracle for this disease to just drop off tomorrow and we could truly get back to normal. But again, people are in that two-week news cycle where they're just waiting for the next two weeks and they're going to write it out. So that's, that's how initially these, these shutdowns were happening. We're going to close it until Easter. And then when that happened, my initial thought was, no, it's not. There's no way. It's going to be the end of the month. And then the end of the month rolls around. We're going to have to extend it for another month. And it's just, just gradual adding on, adding on, testing people, testing people. It's certainly the frog in the boiling pot situation at this point. And as oh, I, I mentioned that one just the other day, <laughs> and as I alluded to, right. So a hundred percent of a pe- people polled in, in a survey were literally going to go nuts. They were going to go crazy. And we're already starting to see these protests get a little bit more agitation behind them, get a little bit more uh, aggressive in in the language and the rhetoric that they're using, whether you're for it or against opening up. That's not that's not what I'm here to talk about. It's the fact that these things are going to start to boil over. They're going to start to escalate a little bit more. We had the governor of Michigan once again, essentially retaliate against the protesters and say, because you're protesting, you're locked down for another 30 days, right? So go to your room, you were acting up. And it's just going to keep going and going. And it's going to get to the point where we're going to have civil unrest if we don't change course. And I don't even know that we can change course, right? To, to, to the point that I made earlier, this ship isn't sailing. This ship isn't turning back. Yeah. And, and and one of the scariest things about this is what what if we do end up with civil unrest on top of everything else? And, and and it just I mean, civil unrest now, we could handle that. Civil unrest in September, October, that's a disaster. I mean, that's that's 
I don't, I don't even know what to say about that. What's crazy too, is everyone hates this system at this point. They really, the average American left or right, they hate globalism. They don't like outsourcing. They don't like insourcing. They don't like job insecurity. They don't like the wages where they're at. You know, they don't like us being basically consumer serfs to other nations. One of the best ways to do that is just, just stay at home and then shop local if you can. You know, I mean, I, I have no idea. Americans, we, we forgot, we've forgotten how to be civilly disobedient. And now it's just like, we're going to go out and pick it. Well, you could have just opened your doors at your local mom and pop shop, shop there and told Walmart to go hang. You know, that, that could have had a profound effect if Americans all across the country did that. That's civil disobedience in a way that actually could break the system and change it in a way that you would want to see. No one's proposed that. It's just, we have to accept the bag or we have to stay at home or we have to go work back at our faceless bureaucratic job for globalist, you know, big tech and big box. There's no in between. There's no other way out. That's why I believe they, they, they slowly staggered this whole thing in. Like you used the whole frog in the pot. And I just was telling a group of guys that the other day, I'm like, if they would have made all the rules that they made just out of the cuff, that would have been a revolt. Oh yeah. But they got everyone in the pot or they tried to get everyone in the pot and they just kept turning the heat up. I mean, if, so here in PA, they made it a mandatory wear a mask like four weeks after this thing was in shutdown. Like, like that should have been like, <laughs> even if you didn't know it worked, right? Hypothetically, we don't know if it works. Should have been day Why wouldn't one. that been a pre- right precautionary for the essential workers immediately coming out of the gate? But we didn't do it. We waited till four weeks. Now there's signs on the doors that you're not allowed in the gas station or in places of business unless you wear a mask. And now there's basically they're policing it and sending you back out the door. Yeah. And what's happening is is that we're programming people to basically just hey they said it we got to do it. And this is what's continuing to go because they kept going, going, going. Now in Pennsylvania, the best I know as of right this minute, May 8th is when that we're going to start doing openings. I haven't even heard a plan yet, though, exactly how that's going to roll out and where and how, how much. Like job sites, construction is just opening, I think, this week here. But one guy said it's not even worth it. They, from the last I heard, they didn't even like say, okay, so many people per square foot house. It's like four people per job site. He's like, if you're doing a huge place, that makes no sense. Now it may have changed some, but these are the the strokes that are going out and everyone's just like, oh, well, that's the rule. So then we're going to do it. And that's because everyone that's in the pot's boiled now, literally, they are desensitized to a certain degree. And then there's a lot of us other ones that have been trying to figure out which side of the, you know maybe the kettle we're on, like we're maybe hanging around on the top going, what's inside the kettle, what's outside the kettle. And we're just now at the point going, what in the crap is going on? And that feels like where I'm at. I'm just like, what in the world is going on? Like some days I wake up and I laugh. I'm, I almost just laugh uncontrollably. Like, what am I living in? Yeah. What movie is this? Yeah. Because it seems so outrageous. <laughs> I, I want to ask you a question and you can, you can totally turn me down on this question, uh, Myron. You, you, you don't feel obligated to answer in the affirmative in any way. But I'm going to be talking about this, and, and Sal and I are going to be talking about this Sunday, a Sunday show. That's exactly what I wanted to talk about. This Sunday was the effects long-term, the strange reality that we're basically caught up in, and the effects on the, the American small business from here on out that these policies are going to have. Would you be available Monday evening? or, or I'm sorry, Sunday evening? 
Probably. Would you, would you like to do that? Because I think you would be fantastic. I mean, on this subject matter, anything business, I'm, I, I just, I, I'm, I'm a fool for punishment. I, I just love small business. I, yeah. I just, I want to see small business succeed. Me um, too. And literally right now, if I was going to advise small stores is how, figure out how to get essential products into your store, literally, because that seems like that's all it takes sell eggs and milk in your whatever store. I mean, we're, that's one of our pivoting moves is healthcare equipment. And we're not really in that genre, but with CNC's like, that's literally how bad it is. Cause this is going to happen again, folks. They've done it once they've set a precedence. This will happen again on any whim for any reason, because they have now told us that we don't need facts. We can shut you down and yep. we can shut you down fast and we can shut you down for as long as we want. End of story. And I can hear it in your voice and I can see it. And I know our audience is listening to this on a podcast. So I, I think that they would agree with me when I, when I say that they can hear it in your voice that you're passionate about small businesses and, and helping small businesses. And you've got a great thing going with Freedom Group LLC. Can you tell us a little bit about that and, and how people can get involved in what you're doing with your coaching? Yeah, so... Cody and I are doing, uh, we just finished up this week as our third free mastermind where we're just allowing folks to come. We've talked about um, focus, preparation, and succeeding. It was kind of a three-step of like, you know, preparing a little bit, just going through the thing. And our goal is to continue creating that um, place where more than ever, um, small business owners, um, even managers within companies, we need somewhere to go talk and process. So our goal is, is creating a mastermind. Um, I've been part of masterminds. And so I try to package what I believe I've always dreamt of having and never really had not saying they don't exist, but I've never been a part of one, but I'm pulling it from different places. We want to teach. We want to hold accountable. And we want to serve. And that's where we answer questions, more of a hot seat style thing. So that's what we've been doing. And we've been beta testing it. Uh, again, one of those things, we, we talked about doing this. We prepared and planned in Bali. And we come back, we were going to roll out it all in a certain way and all of that. And then COVID-19 hit and we're like, you know what? Let's just, we say, let's be, we're professionally vulnerable. Like we're, we try to be professional, but it, it is what it is. It's rough. It's going to be natural. We're not just going to tell you what you want to hear. Our goal is to help you because right now more than ever, if we want to survive as small business owners, and that's our target, small to midsize, is we need to rally together. We need to support each other and, and have that network of accountability, resources, and relationships. So that's definitely important and impactful words to to get out of this. Myron, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to be with us, for taking time out of your your day, your evening, time away from your family. I want to acknowledge that you have brought just an, an insightful point of view as a business owner, as a business leader, and as someone who has a great passion for not only taking care of their family and building a legacy, but also helping your community, be it nationally or internationally. And I, I just, I'm very proud to know you. I'm very happy to know you. And I, and I look forward to many more conversations like this. 
I'd like to turn it over to you, Myron, and give you 30 seconds to say whatever, let's say three to five takeaways that you want our audience to get from today's uh, interview. What are some of the next steps that business owners should be looking at taking? And what are some of the mindset shifts that you believe that the audience should be incorporating into their life right now? Wow. There's so much, um, but I, I just presented the other day on mindset, focus, and accountability, and we are in control of our own minds, and so our destiny is determined by the choices we make right now on where we focus, and if we focus on what I can't do versus what I can do, if we do not refocus and say, okay, this is where I want to go, this is what I want to get out of this experience, we're going to lose. And put things in place to be accountable. I mean, um, I don't, I'm, I'm not saying accountability, buddy, but if you know where you want to go, that in itself is a list to help you stay accountable. And, all I'm gonna, and I would say this, now's not a time to sit down, lay on the couch, and just, you know, there's, we're in a tough time. We're in a, we're in a time unprecedented. I don't know who to call to say, what was the last event like this light? Because there isn't. We're creating history and don't stop doing, keep going, keep pushing and fight for America. Those are excellent takeaways. When you do Brazilian jiu-jitsu, I brought this up on the show before. The number one thing is just do something. Don't stand there. Don't sit there. Don't lay down. Just do something. Myron, right. thank you. Thank you again so much for having us, uh, taking this time to, to be with us. Uh, I'm really looking forward to our next awesome, episode. Man. Yeah, yeah I, I'm nice. glad. I, I, I can't wait for Sunday. It's going to be a great show. Awesome. You know, yeah. honestly, I think we could, we could make this a marathon uh, evening if, if we really wanted to. So let's plan for our next episode to, you know, really dive in and, and get comfortable. So if you guys are interested in following the show, please consider downloading the podcast at newnormalpod.com. You can get it on Spotify. You can get it on iTunes. You can get it on Google. We want to thank you, the listener, for being with us as we continue to grow this audience, as we continue to grow this experience. We want to thank you guys for being on this journey, for providing feedback, for giving us encouraging words, for giving us support. To our family and friends, we thank you for the time that you allow us to be away from you so that we can get on the phone and, and have these conversations. So with that, I want to say stay safe and welcome to the new normal.